Welcome to Sunny in Seattle with your host, Sunny Joy. And coming up on today's show, Sunny welcomes back Leslie Joan Lupo, who's a near-death experiencer and author of Every Breath is Precious. And she returns to the show to dive deeper into one of the most fascinating topics in her book, Houdini Kids. If you identify as an old soul who grew up in a family that just did not understand you, you won't want to miss this fascinating discussion on how your mission on Earth might be. And now I welcome your host for the day, Sunny Joy. And good morning, everyone. Welcome to Sunny in Seattle. I'm your host, Sunny Joy McMillan, and we're here every Friday from 9 to 10 a.m. on Alternative Talk 1150 a.m. KKNW in Seattle, as well as 103.3 KPCA in Petaluma, bringing you amazing guests and resources that will help you create a life filled with joy, peace, freedom, and purpose. It is radio that positively shines. And if you can't catch the show live, you can always access those show archives, which are found at 1150kknw.com. You can also find the show on iTunes and Podcast One, if podcasts are more your thing. Uh, Find out more about me and connect with me through my website, which is goldenoversoul.com. That's goldenoversoul.com. And just a quick housekeeping in terms of events. Of course, many of the events have been canceled. um, But one thing that I have been doing throughout the time that we've been um, in quarantine or lockdown um, since March are uh, the Soul Digger book club um, sessions that we do. And we usually spend three to four weeks with each book. And so our next round starts next week on Tuesday, September 1st. Um, We meet in the evenings at 6 p.m. Pacific. And this book that we're going to be looking at this month is Mary Magdalene Revealed uh, by Megan Watterson. Megan was a guest on the show earlier in the year and um, really fascinated by her book, which shares um, a lot of information that not everyone is familiar with about the gospel of Mary Magdalene, which was one of those suppressed gospels, uh, and and a, a new light on Christianity and maybe the Christianity that we haven't tried yet. So I invite you, if that interests you, to join us for book club. It is free, and you can register by going to my website, goldenoversoul.com, and under the events page, you'll find that Soul Digger book club, and you can find out more information and register there. We'll be meeting the uh, first three Tuesdays of September, so the 1st, the 8th, and the 15th, and you do not have to have read the whole book or really read the book at all. If you just want to join us, usually our question prompts and discussion points are um, universal enough or broad enough that if you haven't read the book, you'll still get something from it. But I can't imagine that you wouldn't want to read the book. It's really good. So hope to see you there. Um, Benny, checking in with you. How How is everything up in Seattle? Uh, doing pretty awesome. Actually, I'd like to piggyback off of your interview you did with Megan Watterson back in 2019. Yeah. And we actually featured that on your show a couple of weeks ago. We re-aired that because yes. you, you did a little staycation. So if you folks missed that, you uh, can go to the podcasts and and hear that. And Sunny, you did an amazing uh, job with that one. So Oh, well, thank you, Benny. Yeah, I enjoyed speaking with Megan. She's Mm -hmm. actually my inspiration for applying to Divinity School this fall. Mm -hmm. Um, I love this stuff so much. And we had a little conversation offline and I said, you know, what do you recommend? And she said, pick the (laughs) professor or 
academic that you most want to learn from and start there. And so the woman who I've been studying for a while now, who is an expert in Mary Magdalene and many other things related to early Christianity is a professor at Harvard Divinity named Karen King. Um, So anyway, that's the little trail of breadcrumbs I'm following right now. So we'll see how that goes. Stay tuned. But thanks, Vinny, for reminding. I I forgot it was in 20. Right. It was in 2019. I talked to her initially, but you're you're right. We did re-air that um, two weeks ago ago, as a little yeah teaser for the book club and because I was mm-hmm. taking a couple of weeks off which I thought I haven't taken two weeks off from the show I don't think since it began in yeah. 2015 uh, so, so like I, I think you're like me we never really take take time for ourselves and you did that so maybe <laughs> this guy did. might give me a little more motivation for myself <laughs> to do a yeah. couple of weeks off as well Benny, I give myself so many more breaks than you do. Like in the entirety, I I mean, okay, let's be real here. And I want (laughs) to, of course, get to our wonderful guest for today, but I do want people to hear this. Like, Benny, how many days off a year do you generally take? And be honest. Like, like, like I have to request it? No, no, no. That you actually, I think they would probably honor many more of your requests if you ask, but I don't see, my guess would be you take two days off per year. Yeah, maybe three Oh, Benny. Yeah. See, I know. I know he's there every major holiday, every major thing. The only thing that I ever see you taking off for, which is really, really wonderful, is your kiddos. Yeah. So. Well, I mean, OK, f- to be like supportive of my shift, it, it's really a, a nice shift to have because I'm up yeah. before everybody else and I leave when everyone is usually halfway done through their day. So right, right. I can manage the rest of my life very well and still, you know, proceed on with, you know, having a wonderful job. So, I mean, yeah. you know, yeah, I do need my downtime, too, but I kind of have that in the afternoons a little bit already for myself. So, yeah, I'm kind of well, thankful that, that way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's a wonderful way of looking at it. But I right. guess my. I just noticed you are dedicated and passionate <laughs> about your work, and it shows. So. Well, thank you. Well, I sleep here a lot, too. So. You do. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not true. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, well, good to check in with you, Benny. And I look forward to first Friday next week to get some more uh, in-depth time with you with Alessandra. Yeah. So. Can't wait. Yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, so on to our wonderful uh, guest for today, Leslie Joan Lupo, who is returning to the show. We had such a wonderful discussion, um, I think it was in April of this year, about her near-death experience. All of this experience was chronicled in her book, Remember, Every Breath is Precious. And there was a concept in the book that really deserved some deeper Uh, diving to unpack it, because I think it applies to probably quite a few of you out there in the KKNW listening audience. And it's a, the concept is called um, Houdini kids. That's the name that, that Leslie um, gave this term. So um, just to give you some background, I'll read her bio and then we'll bring her on so we can get you up to speed on all the things you need to know about Houdini kids. So Leslie Joan Lupo was born in Chicago and raised in a boisterous, tight-knit family. She has a BA in psychology and a BFA in studio art. For nearly 10 years, Leslie was the vice president of operations at Tonke Verde Guest Ranch. After a stampede of horses nearly killed her, she experienced a profound near-death experience, resulting in the inspiring and poignant book that I mentioned earlier, Remember, Every Breath is Precious. Her book offers a unique glance into the afterlife and invites the reader to venture beyond everyday life into understanding the undying reality of their soul. And this book had so many endorsements by folks that many of whom have been on the show or that we will recognize because they're all in this wonderful circle of, you know, these 
these these scientists who are studying non-local consciousness and um, near-death experiences. So that I mean, it's Dr. Pim Van Lommel, Dean Radin, Raymond Moody, Ken Ring, Irvin Laszlo, Bruce Grayson, Suzanne Giesman, and Dr. Gary Schwartz, who also did the foreword. So for the last 22 years, Leslie has been a highly sought after intuitive therapist at the famed Canyon Ranch Resort in Arizona, and for three of those years as the spiritual programs coordinator. She's also a certified NLP or neuro-linguistic programming therapist and Reiki master. Her client base includes Hollywood celebrities, politicians, royalty, and business leaders from all over the world. She serves on the steering committee of the Tucson IANDS or IANS. Um, she guest lectures in the psychology of religion and spirituality class at the University of Arizona and teaches a bi-weekly workshop at Canyon Ranch called Science of Near-Death Experiences. She happily practices detachment, win or lose, by watching her favorite Chicago sports teams, and she resides in Tucson, Arizona. Leslie, welcome back to Sunny in Seattle. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. I appreciate Absolutely. it. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Well, we, there was so much more we wanted to dive into, um, so I appreciate you taking the time to come back and share more with our audience. Um, so, Leslie, why don't we, for those who may not have heard the show back in April, do you want to give a synopsis of, of you know, what happened with the, the accident at the ranch and your near-death experience to bring everyone up to speed on you getting to the upstairs heavenly realms where all of this wonderful information on Houdini Kids was given? Sure. Um, it started at the Tangaverde Ranch, which is a dude ranch, and I got caught in a stampede of horses. And um, I died. I actually left my body a few seconds before the stampede came in and witnessed it. Now, at this time in my life, I was a borderline atheist. I had no interest in spirit. I thought, you die, that's it, no big deal. I didn't care because I was very scientific-minded. And when I popped out of my body and witnessed it with such a peaceful heart, um, I didn't wasn't stressed. Um, it was just like a natural, like taking off a jacket, you know, and, but love, just this real understanding that this is, you know, happening and just feeling inundated with love. And then I transitioned upstairs, which is what I called it, because don't forget when I came back and I had to make sense of it, I couldn't say heaven yet because I was still kind of borderline atheist going, okay, what was that all about? Mm -hmm. And um, But when I was there, I was told I had a choice. I could stay or I could go back to Earth. And so me being me, um, with incessant questions, I said, what do I do if I go up here? And my soul group uh, had a particular um, function of placing into onto the Earth these very, very old souls, and when we study Eastern philosophy, the concept of a bodhisattva is where we hear of that. And those are people who have reached enlightenment, but instead of going into nirvana, which is their word for heaven, they come back down to earth to be teachers. And the most famous one we know is the Dalai Lama. He's a bodhisattva. But what my one of the guides I was working with told me was, Around the middle of the 1800s, a different type of bodhisattva came down. Because when bodhisattvas come down, they're so full of light and love and very drawn to working in whatever religion or spiritual pathway they're in, they're drawn to serve God. 
and um, they know who they are, and they are born into a family and to a culture that supports that, that gets them um, the teachers. But around the mid-1800s, enough global consciousness had connected a new level of a new mission came in with the Bodhisattvas to, instead of being born into an evolved family, to be born into a very young family and culture and or culture and community. So they would not, they would look around where they were born and think, I don't fit in. And I think um, since my book's been out, that's the most amount of questions I get through the emails is people saying to me they felt like a changeling. They felt like uh, they were in the wrong family um, or they just didn't relate to certain parts of their life and went out and had to find a spiritual path within. And the specific mission was to break the generational um, prejudices and hatred that's taught. So you could have someone coming in to a family that's very rigid or very prejudiced trying to teach their children you have to hate these people because they like the White Sox, you know, and um, we're Cubs fans. So those children would go, I like, but they're both from Chicago. What's the problem? You know, and so hating or in rivalry or religions or gender or whatever is just something they can't seem to fathom or do. And when they're very young, they're kind of what I call the hockey pucks of the universe because they don't know really who they are because they've been blindfolded to their spiritual evolution. So these are full-blown bodhisattvas who have like an eraser memory and come into the body and are born into a world they can't really relate to completely and they have to find their own path. They have to reinvent who they are and what they do. And um, blindfolded bodhisattvas is quite a mouthful. And one day I was watching a documentary on magicians, and they were talking about Houdini. And he's standing there on a platform by a river or by ocean or whatever, and they blindfold him, so that caught my attention. I went, ooh, they're blindfolding Houdini. And they wrap him up with a chain, put him in a bag, and throw him in the water. And he has to get out all by himself. And that really struck me because that's the theme of the Bodhisattva, the, um, to come down to help. But now I have to figure out who I am and I have to connect to my spiritual journey. But my spiritual journey is not like yours. Now, this started in the 1850s, but in the 19, like late 30s, because of World War One and World War Two, there were so human, mil, hundreds of millions of people dying in, within army and civilian in both those wars, that there was a huge influx of these Houdini kids coming in, being born into younger families, that um, to be to cause a shift, and they started mm -hmm. in like the mid to late 30s to the mid 70s. Now. At this time, there's still regular bodhisattvas going down. And what I was shown is that the theme of the bodhisattva or the um, Houdini kids are because they're so forgiving and they tend to be healers and helpers or within a family trying to bring 
you know, in a family that's constantly and and fighting, they're jumping and trying to, you know, be the mediator. There are a lot of mediators, but they tend to absorb all the negativity. And um, by absorbing it, they kind of cause the ground. It's like landing in a swamp was a vision I had. And by absorbing all the negativity, we turn it into solid ground. And at the end of that vision, and this was right after I had the head injury and had returned, and I was trying to make sense of things, and I I heard laughing, and I turned and I looked, and there were all these like 10- and 12-year-old-looking kids hitting the ground that we had made solid running. And that was before anybody really talked about indigo kids. It was like right at the beginning when people were discovering that there were some very high kids coming in that didn't need any training. They just knew it. They were downloaded. They hit the ground running. And that's why yeah. you have so many young, like 10, 12, 14-year-olds that are, are speaking with wisdom that you would never expect from someone that young. Right, which is, but the Houdini kids, the ones who came in and absorbed all that negativity, were the ones who mm-hmm. paved the way for those indigo yes. kids to hit the ground running. Yes. So you still yeah. have Houdini kids being born, you still have Bodhisattvas being born, but now you've got another, the third level or the third tier of Bodhisattvas coming down as indigo kids. And they are not going to, and the difference is this, it wasn't. It wasn't to put someone who would be a spiritual leader. If you think of the word bodhisattvas, how many can you name? Well, we know the Dalai Lama only because of what had happened with Tibet. If that Mm -hmm. hadn't happened, we would never have heard his name. And you really don't know bodhisattvas because they're not trying to rule the world or rule the religious world. They're coming down to facilitate spiritual consciousness. It's almost like a generator amping it up to give us the opportunity to um, grow. I always think it's like someone making the, the tent higher, you know, putting up a bigger pole, so now we have mm-hmm. space to grow, and then when we get close to that ceiling, a bunch of them come in and push up the ceiling again so that we are given the opportunity to grow. And, and it's all about growth. But the, the thing yeah. is, what I've noticed recently because someone called my attention to it that had written me a letter. She said, Leslie, you should be talking to empaths. And so I did a little research on empaths, and I went, oh, my gosh, these are Houdini kids because they don't know why they know, and they had to find their own self sense of self because one of the things I was teaching for the Houdini kids was how to have very gentle boundaries. You, you know, people that are born Houdini kids tend to be selfless to a fault. And we can't not take care of ourselves. So there's this one little sentence that has been a game changer for the majority of the people I've worked with. It's just a very simple sentence which makes you include yourself in your decisions by asking yourself, is this blank? Whether it's a decision, a relationship, a job. Um, One lady was asking this and lost 130 pounds in a year because she would ask with every bite she took, um, is this you know, decision or request from someone, come pick me up at the airport at 3 in the morning? Seriously? Um, is this in my highest good, too? 
So yeah. if you're including yourself, and highest good is not just spiritual. It's this, is this in my emotional highest good? Is this in my physical highest good? Is this in my intellectual highest good? And is this in my financial highest good? And you have to have five yeses or something <laughs> that, that doesn't apply. Like when Connie, the lady that lost all the weight, you know, intellectually, well, she seemed to handle all the sugar she was eating. So it, she's a CPA, brilliant. So that was like, it didn't really apply to her intellect. But did it apply to her financially? When she calculates how much extra food she was eating in these desserts she would buy, it, and mm-hmm. the amount of time she spent driving around because she would never buy two at a row in a store. She had to rotate them because she knew if she bought three, they'd look at her and see how obese she was and go, okay, that's your dessert today. And yeah. so she would um, go around, and it, when she realized it was around plus her time because she's a CPA and made a lot of money, so we just took half the time. It took half the hours. And it was like $50,000, and she almost fell off her chair. Is it in my highest good physically to eat this much? No. So you get a couple no's in there, and you have to revisit it. It doesn't mean automatically, I'm not good at cookie cutter. You know, it just makes you pause and say, okay, what is in my highest good in this decision? How can I treat myself with love? And it's helped a lot of people make changes in their life with toxic relationships, toxic self-hurting behaviors. And that's a real empowering question. Is this also in my highest good? And again, highest good is those five separate things. Yeah, and it makes so much sense. And I have to say, since we spoke back in April, I have had, I noticed a trend and I, I tend to, I think that many of my clients are Houdini kids and I forwarded this, um, this concept, um, with the link to your book, um, Mm -hmm. in many instances. And when I do share this information for folks who feel like they were an outsider in their family and whether that means they just didn't agree with the fundamentalism in their home or they were the target of abuse and really bad treatment. Either way, to know that that experience may be serving a greater purpose, it's like something clicks into place and it is so validating and empowering so that they can be asking those questions about what they want to create in their life now that they kind of come come around and remember. Because you say there that that for many of these people um, that often the the wheels start turning and they, by the time you're in your forties and then maybe by the t- finishing in your fifties, is that usually when people have the, like the, the light goes on and they remember their divinity and they realize what they're here to do? Yes. Um, that's actually interesting because my degree is in psychology, but it's developmental psych. And we know mm-hmm. that it takes the humans about 45 to 50 years to really grow up. I mean, we have the longest childhood of any animal on the planet because we're so inventive. And, I mean, that's our blessing and our curse, Because, but that's our blessing. And if we are patient with ourselves and we continue, I mean, we can learn and grow till we die, which is unusual, again, for animals. Um, but when um, when we're talking about... Um, the ability 
for people to be um, centering on a deeper spiritual connection within all by themselves, it's very, it, it's relieving. I've had people, when I was working at Kenya Ranch, I've had people put their head down on the table and cry, happiness of relief, yeah. like, oh my goodness, and there is a purpose. And one thing you touched on was the forgiveness, because no matter mm-hmm. what's done to Houdini kids, they sincerely, they sincerely forgive. But one of the things we have to learn is forgiveness is perfect, but it doesn't mean you have to go reconnect with them. Your obligation is kind of finished. Because, again, they're, they're so selfless to a fault. And there's a balance of learning to have these very gentle boundaries. There's a balance of the difference between unconditional love and intimate love. And all of those things are critical so that we can be in a selfless but not selfless to a fault. The thing is, yeah. Houdini kids are very sensitive to selfish behavior. So as we're all growing up, if we bump into a narcissist or we bump into a kid that hogs everything or one of our siblings is beating us up all the time or whatever we've gone through, anytime we saw someone selfish, we noticed it, and it was something we said that's wrong, and we didn't mimic it. But that made us go to selfless to a fault because we're striving so hard not to be selfish and that sometimes you can even think inviting myself into this, you know, to think about myself is selfish. And I can't tell you how many people have said, oh, my God, that's so selfish. I'm thinking, hmm, you know, I mean, you're heroic, but, I mean, you can't jump on these bombs. You can't keep jumping on these bombs in the family, you know. Right. And one of my clients came back from a reunion, and he, the first thing out of his mouth, he said, I think, Who's exhausted. He said, I think I absorbed everything negative in that whole, during the whole weekend. And that's oh, the for Houdini kids. We absorb. So part of learning is, and funny, because when I was in college, I was working with um, a Navajo medicine man, and he said that to me. He said, you are not a vacuum cleaner. Don't absorb the negative energy of the people you work with. And so he had a very long uh, bone from an elk that he had tied strings around with beads, and he had carved, and beautiful, and he would blow through it. And he said, when you're working with someone's sickness, you blow it off of them. You don't suck it into you. And mm. that's why I became a Reiki master, because you really learn how to not take on other people's stuff, energy. And mm. um, I use the analogy now of being a vacuum cleaner or a leaf blower. They didn't have those back then. But um, it was a beautiful lesson for me to learn not to absorb the negativity of anybody around me, you know. Um, yeah. Be the leaf blower, not the vacuum. Right. And, and yeah. Reiki is something. I had a client that used to get, she was a massage therapist who literally picked up every illness that she worked on. So I advised her to become a Reiki master, which she did, and it's just you're you're taking the energy through your heart and through your hands and through your eyes, and you're pushing it off. And she was so cute. I mean, this is how selfless to a fault she was. But what about the energy, like blowing off and 
sticking on someone else. And I went, no, no, no. And you, <laughs> the negative energy dissipates. I said, so picture sparklers or butterflies or little balloons, you know, floating up to God. You know, just it, you won't infect someone else by blowing the energy off because energy is not tangible like that. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. and it's right about at the at nine thirty here. So why don't we, um, if it's okay with everybody, Benny, if you're there, we can take our break, and when okay. we come back, we will continue our discussion. Um, I am joined today by Leslie Joan Lupo. She is a near death experiencer as well as an author of a fantastic book that we're discussing here today called Every Breath Is Precious, and we've been exploring one of the really fascinating concepts in this book. Um, on Houdini kids. So um, if you are listening to this going, oh my goodness, I think I may be one of these kids, stay tuned because we will talk a little bit more, um, unpack this topic even more when we return in just a few minutes. The preceding audio was via a Skype call. Hey, Sunny and Seattle friends. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you know that the greatest gifts and synchronicities of my life happened when I started listening to the voice of my soul and let it take the lead. But in a crazy culture and a chaotic world, it can often be difficult to hear that soul voice, and we forget just how powerful that spiritual being inside you really is. Which is why I created Soul Digger, a membership community for women and those who identify as women who want to live a soul-driven life. We meet virtually to learn, connect, share, grow, and inspire one another on our spiritual journey. Find out more at my website, goldenoversoul.com that's goldenoversoul.com and click on the tab that says work with me so come get shamelessly spiritual with us in the soul digger community where we mine the true gold that comes from your soul i'm dr anthony lazarus and this is climate connections in 1867 after several days of rain the Tennessee River surged over its banks and water rushed into Chattanooga, Tennessee. The devastating flood remains the worst in the river's history since record-keeping began. But Lisa Davis of the University of Alabama is digging in the dirt and finding evidence of even larger floods in the more distant past. When floodwaters recede, they leave behind minerals. And so we search for these deposits and we date them and we build a chronology of events. And in some cases, we're actually able to reconstruct what the height or the size of the flood was. At their research site in northern Alabama, her team has found evidence of several Tennessee River floods larger than the flood of 1867. And she says such events could happen again. As the climate warms, extreme rainfall is growing more common in the Tennessee River Valley. So Davis says it's important for planners to understand what they could be up against in the future. That information can be used to figure out whether or not dams have been adequately designed. Has anything happened that's bigger than what they have imagined? Not just in the past two centuries, but over millennia. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. To hear more stories like this, visit climateconnections.org. Sunny in Seattle, radio that positively shines. Have something important to say? Want to help improve our world? Need to promote your business uniquely and effectively? KKNW is the answer. 
Our staff helps broadcasters and podcasters create professional sounding audio. Bring your talent and let our experts help you craft a radio show or podcast that best delivers your message. Learn more at 1150kknw.com. That's 1150kknw.com. KKNW, talk variety that's live and local. Seattle, Tacoma, Antwerp. That's right. We're streamed worldwide on our app and on the web at 1150kknw.com. And welcome back to Sunny in Seattle. I am your host, Sunny Joy. And I have to say, I almost didn't want that intro to, or the whatever the music was, the bumper music, Betty, to end. I thought, oh, that's so perfect. That makes my heart very full. So good, good choice, as always. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Yeah, so I am joined today by Leslie Joan Lupo. Um, she was on the show in April, and we had such a wonderful conversation about her book, Every Breath is Precious, that we wanted to um, take a deeper dive into one of the concepts in the book, Houdini Kids. And so just to bring you up to speed, if you're just joining us, um, so when Leslie had her near-death experience, um, she, unlike... Uh, I always love interviewing folks who've had a near-death experience, but one of the things that I think makes Leslie's story unique among all the folks that I've come across is that she had a particularly rich and a long time, I mean, I know when you're not in a human body, all time is now and it's not linear, but in terms of what she was given, she had so much information that she uh, was able to bring back. And so that's where the Houdini kids um, concept came in. And so if you are someone who was growing up in a family that you felt like an outsider, either in the family or your school, perhaps you were bullied, perhaps you were the target of abuse in your family, and you just never really felt like you fit in. And then you always probably had a longing for something greater, um, that, that hunger for the divinity that, you know, as as Leslie calls them, blindfolded bodhisattvas in the beginning, um, that, you know, you were blindfolded to who you really were and are just now beginning to really take that blindfold off and to remember that spark of divinity that's in you. And the purpose being that you brought some light to a very dark place that potentially paved the way for um, more light beings to come in. Um, and as Leslie described, you know, the ground became more solid where you landed. And now, uh, of course, we've got the Indigo kids coming in. So hopefully that's a pretty good synopsis. So, you know, Leslie, we're, I've got so many questions here, but um, is there anything that we haven't touched on yet that you want to dive into before I get back into my outline? Yes, just one more thing about Houdini kids is they literally have to learn how to play. Because mm. selfless to a fault makes it very hard for people to take time off, hint, hint, and, <laughs> um, and that kind of reaction. However, if you adore your job and it's not like being at work, then that's different. But there are people that have a hard time taking vacations. Um, I even had someone question the fact that when we were working in my soul group that we would take a break and we went swimming. And their purpose question was, how can you go swimming when people are suffering on earth? And, you, and, and we can live like that to the point where it grinds us down and we're losing sight of the bigger picture. I love what Mother Teresa said when someone said, how do you, what do you do when you go out with donations of food for, and there's 500 people, and you only have enough food for 300. She said, I just look at the next face and the next face, and I just work one-on-one -on -one and give them all my love, and I give 
when I come to the end, they know and I know, and I give the rest to God. And that was really something, again, that was very inspiring because we do have to take time off. We do have to recharge our batteries. We have the right to laugh and enjoy what we have. And so many of these Houdini kids feel awkward because I have a home, I have a little farm, I have an orchard, and there's people starving, you know, and why do I have this? And it's, it blocks them. So they literally have to learn how to play and recognize mm-hmm. that play is generating. Like the level of forgiveness they bring down elevates the capabilities of all humans to forgive. So we're breaking the chain of prejudice. We're elevating the level of true forgiveness from the heart. And we have to learn that joy is part of this, what God's design for us is too. And that at any given time, at one part of the world is going through turmoil. That's when we jump in to help, which is our, in our DNA, is we're very helpful animal. We're the only mm-hmm. animal on the planet that will risk our life saving another species that we don't know anything about. Even a mountain lion caught in a leg trap is all over the Internet. These two hikers, three hikers, helped them out at mm-hmm. risking their lives. But they um, the only animal on the planet that goes to that level. And that's wonderful. That's what the divine is all about. That's the divinity within us, is the loving and the sharing. But play and laughter is part of God and joy and celebration. And what are we holding it for? Well, I can't sit down to eat until everyone is fed in the world, is something that a lot of Houdini kids have in them in some way or another. So learning how to take a breath, take a little time off, dance in in the rain and splash in the puddles and do silly giddy things because you need to recharge your batteries to be in balance. Yes, absolutely. And that's the only way it seems like that you will have the resilience to be the leaf blower, not just the vacuum who's beaten down. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And the other thing, as we're talking about these Houdini kids that landed in some of them in very dark places, either a dark culture or a dark family or a dark town, um, and not dark as in bad, but just younger souls who weren't quite on the trolley yet with, you know, awakening of consciousness. So the other thing to flip the perspective a little bit, one of the concepts that you discuss in the book that I think um, is important is if Houdini kids are feeling so alone while they're in that experience, while they have forgotten their divinity and, and forgotten their role, haven't really come back around to it yet, that there are groups of light beings in the upstairs or the heavenly realms that are focusing energy and attention in these dark places to kind of support the Houdini kids or support the the beings that are on earth that are having a hard time. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. That was one of your roles, apparently. Well, when I was upstairs, I saw these and we were walking around because what they told me was I should kind of spend a little, a few minutes there. And again, Time upstairs is totally different than time down here. But what I saw were these big, some smaller circles that cut into the lawn and gone 
you know, like a, like a, you know, those stages you see in Greece that are half a circle and they're cut into stone. These were cut into the grass, and people would walk down and form these circles. And there was a couple exceptionally large ones that when a lot of people would be, when there's a lot of pain on earth, then they're um, all in the bigger circles sending the light energy and hope because hope is a critical thing for humans to have. Um, and we don't need a lot to be hopeful. You know, if people have food in their cupboard and safe passage from their children, you're not going to have a lot of the um, rage and the terrorists and the, the abuses that go on because as long as they've got hope that I can have I have a sense of purpose and I have hope there's a lot more peace involved. And um, that's kind of what we do is we will go into those big circles that go down in steps to a very center where there's a light ball. It sometimes looks like a flame going up a pillar and everyone will just unite in sending as much positive energy as we can. But, you had said something at the very beginning of following a trail of crumbs. And mm. and that's the difference. If God comes down and just says, bibbidi bobbidi boo come on, guys, <laughs> the whole purpose is lost because as individuals growing and learning and bettering ourselves, as we do that, the whole planet evolves, all of consciousness evolves. In other words, there's no such thing as perfection. Perfection mm. would be like, I know everything in the planet, I've got nothing left to learn, and I'm going to be the perpetual teacher in the classroom, which is what Houdini kids usually grow up, is they're the adult in high school. They have all their girlfriends and boyfriends or guy friends come and dump all their problems, and they try to help them sort them out, but then when they want to talk to someone, they're like, I don't know, you know, the person doesn't. So they do what we call kind of a classic teacher in the classroom syndrome but it's nice now because more and more houdini kids are meeting other houdini kids and the first thing you have to do is put in those boundaries and really begin to have a difference between who is my peer in my life if i don't if they're not a peer then they're literally a patient and as mm. we know from being a psychologist, you're not allowed to date your patients, you're not allowed to hang out with your patients as friends, and you're not allowed to treat someone in your family because there are boundaries we can't cross. And that's what I meant about the difference between unconditional love is for everyone, you know, including mm-hmm. sports fans that we don't talk about. And <laughs> intimate love is where we're vulnerable because unconditional mm. love treats everyone as God's children, and that's what it should be. And that's wonderful. But I see so many people posting that you must unconditionally love your alcoholic husband who beats you. Yes, but it doesn't mean you have to stay. You know, intimate love means I'm vulnerable. I mean, think about it. If if someone came to you and said, Sonny, Charlie Manson's been in prison for like 30 years, and he turned 75. Would you mind taking him home for the weekend? Unconditional love made us not throw him into the Colosseum with all of the 
gladiators, you know, (laughs) butchering him. That would have been entertainment 2,000 years ago, and thank God that we've evolved. But today we find someone like him, and we say, you are God's son, but we're putting you into prison till you die so that we're safe. And you wouldn't take him home with you because then you're vulnerable. So unconditional love, which is what we are evolving towards, which means equality is oneness, not sameness, and we're evolving there, it makes Houdini kids exceptionally vulnerable because they feel this unconditional love and then they constantly get hurt. So there's a thing I have on my web pages. I'm doing exercises for Houdini kids, and the first one is called Peer or Patient, and it's like 30 pages, and it's a lot of journaling. But it's really understanding that we can unconditionally love everyone on the planet but not be hurt from them. And we don't have to put up walls, and we don't have to wear armor anymore because everybody dysfunctional we love at a safe distance. And the people we put on our jugular vein peers. And most mm-hmm. of the clients that have done the exercise, they'll put down like 100 or 150. One lady had 250 people out of her address book because she's very social and um, in a social business. And uh, when it came down to her peer group, she only had five people that there's a criteria list that fit the criteria for a peer. And she was like shocked. And then she began, you know, we were talking about it, and she began to say, oh, that's right, I'm always the mother, I'm always the forgiving one, I'm always the one doing all the work in the relationship. And she just shifted a little. Nobody notices it, but you know who your peers are, and that's like attracting more peers then. Yes. And so on this theme... If someone out there is listening, and I, I right now as I'm saying this, I have this visual that you've described, and it was the the visual you were given to really, um, what's the word, demonstrate what the journey is like for the Houdini kit. So the first round lands in basically a swamp, and as they absorb all this negative energy, the ground becomes a little bit harder so that the next round of light beings can come in. But there are these images that I had as I was reading your book of you know, some of them are halfway out of the muck and they're trying, like some of them, you know, flamed out early, but some are like halfway out of the muck. If you meet someone who, you know, identifies as a Houdini kid and they are not, they haven't quite found the other Houdini kids yet. They haven't quite remembered who they were. They're not quite out of the muck. What is the best wisdom or advice that you give to people to help fully extricate themselves? The first thing is patience. It takes a little while to undo the um, brainwashing that you had as a child, that you were inadequate and you weren't worthy. But the second thing is um, to understand, like, that one sentence, is this in my highest good, putting, you have to have these boundaries because our own love for humanity can be crippling. And what we have to do is by including ourselves in that love, then we are able to finish the process of feeling worthy enough of receiving love. And the other thing is, it's really important to have those gentle boundaries up, like that peer or patient thing, looking Mm -hmm. at someone and knowing who is my peer in my whole address book 
the rest of them are patients and you can't hang out with them. These, yeah. You can be like a mentor, but when you have that in your head and you go back out into the world, if you go and you don't have those boundaries up, all you're going to attract is little lost puppies because Houdini kids have this insane level of like a, like a, a lighthouse. There's this huge beacon of light and every little lost puppy comes and every narcissist comes because narcissists know we won't ever ask for anything and they're happy with that. And we, they also know how giving and nurturing Houdini kids are and they're happy with that. And wow. narcissists always appear like your best friend because they are, they're just your best friend immediately or the most amazing person you've ever dated. And within three to four months, it's like, wait, what happened? Where did that person go? Because yeah. the, the mask comes off and now you're hooked and you're going to try to, you believe the lie that we were taught as children, true love does not conquer all. It conquers all with your peer. But when yeah. you're an older soul, you can't talk physics with a second grader. You need to find <laughs> older souls, right? So yeah. it's, allow, it's giving you permission to play. I don't have to fix everyone on the planet. I will do what I can and give the rest to God. But it's having those gentle boundaries up in which you know when you meet someone right off the bat, you know, okay, you're in sixth grade and we can have chit-chat and captain table talk and go see movies. But when I fall to my knees, I know who my peers are. And I reach yeah. out to those people because they support me as I am. And when yes. you make those boundaries... All of a sudden, the whole world shifts, and you've got so many peers coming out of the woodwork. It's phenomenal. Yeah, it's beautiful. And it also makes me think of another, um, uh, from the book, um, you write that the last part in terms of Houdini kids is sticking to your guns in the face of the majority point of view. Um, that's the hardest part. And it makes me think of when you had your near-death experience, um, it was in the 80s, and people were not talking about this um, in the way that they are. Near-death experiences yes. had not hit mainstream culture, and you had doctors telling you they were going to institutionalize you. Yes. There, you faced a lot of backlash, and so you have some experience. Yeah, what would you say to people who are terrified right now, let's say, to stand up to uh, a different political view or value or the pe people are very scared of being taken down online with criticism and how right. you have some experience with facing the majority view. What do you have? What advice do you have there? The point is this in the book, I talked about an experience I had with a dog who is, we were hiking in the woods and you know how dogs adore you. He stepped off, he went off trail and he stepped into a le leg trap. And when I went there, I could see the button to push to open it, so I gently and, you know, came near him and talked, and I thought, you know, I, he was calming down because at first he was trying to chew his leg off, and as soon as I, my hand got near his wound, he attacked me, and I jumped back, and he ripped my, shredded my coat. A man was hiking, came running in, did what I should have done, covered Orion's head with a his coat, pushed the button, jumped back, holding his coat in front of us, and my dog was limping. He was fine. Was I mad at him? No. He was attacking me because he was in so much pain. He was not rational. He was surviving, and that's what we all have within us. We all have that animal brain, 
if someone's attacking you, it's because they already had a bear trap on and you're just a place where they can unload. In psychology, we call that transference. I mean, think about that. Well, he's biting my shoulder and ripping my coat. He's not feeling the trap. And Mm -hmm. when he's chasing me, it was on a chain because I jumped away and he chased me again. He couldn't get me a second time because it was on a chain. He couldn't feel it. He's pulling on it. He still couldn't feel the pain because Mm -hmm. he was so focused on hurting me. And that's the core of when someone attacks you. Instead of trying to rationally explain yourself, they're not going to hear you. It's best, one of the ways I diffuse the situation, I say, wow, thanks for sharing. You're ugly, fat, Mm. and stupid, Leslie. Well, thanks for sharing. And I smile. And, Mm. you know, I'm Sicilian, so I mean, half of me wants to go and slap them, you know, but (laughs) I don't. (laughs) I go, you're not nice. No, I, you know, I just, because I really got that lesson of the bear trap. And when someone's like, or on the, I get a lot of posts that are really nasty when I do post because I'm all over social media, and I'll just say a blessing because that person's coming from pain, you know, yeah. and I don't engage. I just say thanks for sharing, you know, or, you know, everyone has a right to their opinion. Thank you for sharing yours, and I move on. And it ha- it's difficult, whether in a job or relationships, that's when you have to really rethink, is this my highest good to stay being in a relationship where I'm always having to be abused and I always have to defend myself. I'm the whipping post here. Is this in my highest good? No. Right. So then we have to figure out how to get out. And there's no like general formula because each case is very individualized. Right. Yeah. And we are, unfortunately, Leslie, we are right up against the end of the hour again. This flew by. But I think where you left it, that that one question that Houdini kids can ask themselves, is this whatever this is, this person, this relationship, this food, this job, this place, is this in my highest good? And I think, man, you can't go wrong with that. So thank you so much, Leslie, for returning to Sunny in Seattle. It has been such a joy to talk to you. Okay. Thank you for having me. Yes. And of course, the book to check out that has all of this and more is Every Breath is Precious. And uh, the name Leslie Joan Lupo. And she, as you um, heard on the show today, is with Canyon Ranch. And so you can do um, intuitive readings with her as well. Um, Leslie, is is it LeslieJoanLupo.com, the website? Yes. And it's L-E-S-L-E-Y. And the title of the book is Remember Every Breath is Precious. Oh, I'm so sorry, Leslie. My bad. Yes. Remember, every breath is precious. On that, that will bring our show to the close today. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm your host, Sunny Joy, signing off.